And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on November 6th, 2020. Andy Shank, a self-professed plant nerd, is the owner of Sam Brown's Wholesale Nursery in Malvern, PA, where he has worked for 22 years. Andy received a BS in ornamental horticulture from the University of Delaware and is a member of the Plant Selection Committee for the Rare Plant Auction at Longwood Gardens, Delaware Center for Horticulture. Andy's long-lived passion for the outdoors, nature, and gardening inspired his desire for lifelong learning and his successful career in horticulture. Andy, welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast. Yeah, Thank Andy. you for being our guest today. Appreciate it. So we have some, some real serious questions for you. How do you determine what you're going to grow and sell at your nursery? Um, a lot of people are asking that. And what do you see coming down the line for uh, future plantings for our region because of uh, climate change? Well, um, that's a really good question because obviously what we buy, we want to sell. And um, a lot of it is driven by, I, I, I try to stay in tune on the trends and the new plants and things like that. Uh, I like to trial a lot of them here at home in my own garden before we try to put them on the shelf to make sure they're going to succeed. But of recent, the things that really drive sales are deer resistant plants and um, probably um, extreme weather condition plants. So, you know, we've, we have definitely seen a resurgence in um, more southern, what I would consider southern plants that are now completely hardy for us here. But the the deer resistance is the probably the number one key in terms of what we sell. Now, when, when you um, talk to your clients, do you recommend increasing diversity to reduce overall deer browse? Absolutely. You know, we'll have people come in and, you know, they'll want to do a hedge of, say, Thuya Emerald Green or Thuya Green Giant, Picea Abies. And I'm like, you know, it's a, it's a great idea, but, you know, diversity, you, you really need to mix it up. I, I hate to see, you know, 20, 30 of something going in. I'd much rather see groups of five or groups of three going in mm-hmm. of, uh, of different types of material because who knows when the next disease, the next insect, the next whatever is going to come down the road. So, you know, Diversity is definitely, you know, we have to look at nature itself and, you know, our our native, our native woods and everything else, they're full of diversified flora and fauna. So we try to preach the same thing to our customers. That's a good philosophy. What you see around you in the natural world. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I wouldn't consider myself like a purist, 100%, you know, native, because I, I do love the Asian plants and I feel that there's you know, specific ones certainly do well for us here as well. Um, you know, you look at like Lindera glaucus alsifolia, 
I think that is a plant with untapped potential for the landscape, just in terms of deer resistance. You could almost call it an evergreen because of the way it holds foliage through the winter, like a beech or an oak. And, um, you know, a, a fantastic, useful plant that way. And so we're promoting that one as well. I saw today uh, while I was walking around with my students at Longwood, the um, amount of, of the spice bush uh, mm -hmm. that you're talking about today. I was really impressed with um, how they look and uh, especially now with the weather up and down, holding those leaves for the wintertime is a great uh, interest for the landscape. It truly is. Andy, can you give us a couple of examples? Uh, you know, my ears always perk up when uh, fellow uh, horticulture, arboriculture people start acknowledging, you know, extreme weather. And uh, I guess we're solidly zone seven. How is that impacting some of the plants that you're bringing in? Or to be more direct, what are you favoring that we can plant, uh, you know, more or less with confidence that it can withstand heavy uh, periods of precipitation followed by, you know, six or eight weeks of hot, dry and excessive humidity and things like that? So I think probably one of the, well, two of the best examples of that would be um, Douglas fir and blue spruce. You know, they used to be a total yeah. staple in terms of screening. Douglas fir because of the rab decline. And I feel also the excessive moisture and swings in temperature and heat, you know, that plant except for a cut tree that's being sprayed to the nth degree to keep it healthy, um, you're not going to see one thriving in the landscape. And the same with Picea pungens. I mean, that used yeah. to be a staple plant that we not only grew, but sold oodles of. But we've, we've had to call everything that we had in our growing fields, and I'll mm. only bring them in, you know, as special order. So I think therein really shows you how things have changed. Um, driving around, even the layman, you know, you saw this beautiful blue spruce that was 15, 20, 30 foot tall in a neighbor's yard or whatever, and you've slowly seen the decline from the bottom up, and now you're looking at probably a dead standing plant. So uh, the palette has definitely changed. Yeah, and I guess it's uh, we're in the midst of the change. Every every uh, year, I, I I see something else that I go, well, you know, this plant's uh, starting to fade. This year, I've kind of focused in on malice, fruit-bearing apples, and uh, some of the crabapple selections that are just, you know, I'm sure you've seen it defoliated by early August, if not earlier. Well, you know, in a it's it's a good and a bad thing because we are selectively finding the plants that will perform and you know as as a nurseryman it's my job to try to find the best thing so that my name's not going to be tarnished and someone's going to definitely succeed with the selection that we put on the shelf are you are you using um more uh abies concolor in place of some of these other evergreens so again, Abies concolor, we're seeing that Abies as a whole is favored highly by the deer. And at least in where we are, uh, the pressure is so high that it's really difficult to recommend that. Now, if you're looking for that glaucous color on a plant, certainly, you know, concolor or candikins or blue cloak, excellent choices, but you really have to still have the right site for it. Trying to find that, that, that glaucous or blue foliaged evergreen is getting harder and harder to recommend mm. So if you're looking for um, an evergreen, how about maybe some of the broadleaf evergreens like American holly and foster holly? And are you looking to um, to maybe increase sales in those? We've definitely seen an increase in uh, Ilex opaca, our, our American holly. Um, that's one, one of the few that 
one of the few islands that we can still keep in production due to the deer pressure we have in our field. Um, we're still promoting and growing Ilex X attenuata along with gold, which mm -hmm. I know is one of your favorites. A fantastic performer for us and to this day still being uh, left alone for the most part, part by the deer. But pretty much any other, well, probably one of the newer ones that we've seen on the block is Ilex X Red Beauty. Um, I believe Missouri blood in there, but such a tight, shiny, spiny leaf. We're seeing good resistance on that compared to, say, Dragon Lady or Centennial Girl or some of the other hollies that are out there. Yeah, I think um, I think evergreens are something that a lot of people don't think about putting into the landscape, but really need to think about putting into the landscape. I remember having a friend who was in horticulture who said to me, you know, if you're not recommending 50% evergreens in the landscape, you're doing the landscape a disservice because it's all part of the habitat uh, for uh, birds, especially in the wintertime, or cover for uh, other animals, including deer. I agree completely. I agree completely with that. And I think a lot of people, you know, when winter comes around, that's when you can really reassess your garden and you're like, wow, wouldn't it be nice to have something evergreen, be it needle or broadleaf to, you know, give me protection or give me interest here in this spot that you don't notice the rest of the time of the year. Um, have you been seeing a lot of problems with um, cedrus, blue atlas cedar or the atlas cedar? Uh, both of which, you know, I grew up on as staple plants that I used to sell the heck out of. Um, again, that was plants that we would have both uh, straight Cedrus Atlantica glauca, Cedrus Atlantica glauca pendula. Um, the demand has definitely lessened. Um, mite damage, for sure, is one issue. They also seem to suffer from reflective heat if we have a serious snow cover year where you'll get good defoliation on it. So, you know, again, a plant that was super popular 25, 30 years ago is now kind of waning and is, you know, not as popular as what it used to be. What about the Deodar? Because that always was a, a difficult one to grow because we were not in a warm enough environment. That's, no. that's one of the few cedrus that we still, we, we grow cedrus deodora and cedrus labanii to some degree, and I still try to promote those. Uh, deodora and labanii both can be a little tricky. Sometimes uh, when you dig them, especially B and B, you'll get a, a shed or a really heavy needle drop. So with our production in the grow bags, we're, we're finding that's lessened to a great degree. Um, the polar vortex winters that we had a few years ago certainly leveled the playing field a little bit there, but I think those are both still two very worthy plants to uh, to consider to add into the landscape. And I'm, I'm also thinking of Magnolia grandiflora uh, and some of the um, evergreen uh, Magnolia virginiana uh, for sub uh, variety uh, or subspecies yes. Australis. Agreed. Um, we do great with Magnolia grandifolia. Um, Bracken's Brown Beauty, probably one of our top sellers. Little Gem is a great plant, but again, you know, we're pushing the threshold northern northwise in terms of hardiness. So we've kind of pushed in towards Teddy Bear and or K. Paris as a substitute for that. Uh, Alta is another fantastic form that we like because it doesn't eat up too much real estate. But again, now that we're seeing this trend in warming, I'm seeing Claudia Wanamaker, Dee Dee Blanchard, and some of the really heavy brownbacks, as they call them, are actually surviving quite fine here. Um, on the Magnolia Virginianas, you know, I, the Australis types are fantastic. We were a big Henry Hicks fan for the longest time, 
but boy, that plan is slow. Um, mm. So we've kind of changed production into um, Moonglow, which would still be about 50% evergreen in a normal winter, but probably has twice uh, the growth rate that you'd see on Henry Hicks. Yeah, Moonglow is used a lot at Longwood as well. Um, actually considered to be what, Jim Wilson? Yes. Uh, Jim Wilson, part of the old Victory Garden. You got um, it. Yep. Um, yeah, I think I think it's it's really good to get some insight from you about all this because people who are looking to do a landscape for their home garden or landscape contractors need to keep abreast of the information, and not everybody does. They stay with the same plant palette uh, because it's tried and true for them, and then all of a sudden things start to happen, and then they're scrambling around to look for plants that are going to work. And I hear this time and time again from landscape architects that when the young landscape architects that go to work for a firm, they're working for a firm that has, you know, a palette of maybe 40 plants, and that's it. And that's what they use on a regular basis. And, you know, you really, you really need to get away from that and, and really try other things. And, and, I, and I think that that's great that you're on top of that because as a nurseryman, you're looking way ahead of everybody else. No, and, and absolutely. And like I said earlier, we, we want our customers to succeed with the, uh, you know, with the plants that they're getting from us. Probably about 15 years ago, I ran into this plant called Elysium Floridanum. And I'm like, you know what? It looks like it might live here. So let's put one in the ground and see what it does. That has become an amazing staple plant for us. And once I have introduced it and explained, you know, the benefits and what it likes to our customers, it's a plant we can't keep on the shelf. And luckily, I've been able to convince a few of our vendors to start amping up production. So it's I'll sell that as much as I'll sell a boxwood anymore because you know, there's a great broadleaf evergreen that will really tolerate a bunch of different soil conditions, a bunch of light, different light conditions, and, and thrive. And in, ca- and in case our listeners don't know, the anise bush or the anise tree, um, and it's, uh, it's a really beautiful one from Florida um, and from the southern states, which uh, obviously has acclimated well to the north, as you're mentioning that. And do you look for, do you actually do propagation from seed? You know, that's funny. Yes, I do. I'm a big seed guy. I, I collect seed off of all kinds of things. The crisper drawers in my refrigerator are filled with stratified seed right now. I'm guilty so. too. Yeah. But um, <laughs> Elysium has been a bit of a trick because of that hard seed coat. So a couple of years ago, I'm like, you know what? I got to figure a way to break this seed coat. So I bought a rock tumbler um, and I would put coarse sand in there with the seed. And I did a couple different replications in terms of how long I let it run. So if I let it run with a coarse sand for like 20 minutes, I'm, I'm getting pretty decent germination on them right now. Mm. That's all. Aw- that's awesome. I used to have a, a colleague at the university who was doing that kind of work. Uh, his his thing was uh, breaking dormancy and seed, and uh, that's really fun stuff to do. It is. It's really fun. Um, what about um, pawpaw and uh, do you do Zenobia? We or do. Dusty I, Zenobia? I, again, um, when I saw your talk yesterday to see uh, to see Zenobia on there. You know, locally here, we have Jenkins Arboretum, which has a beautiful stand of Zenobia. Um, most people don't know it, and it's kind of weird to look at it and figure that it's in, you know, the azalea and rhododendron family. But yes, we do carry Dusty, Nizo- Dusty Zenobia, um, a fantastic plant in the azalea rhododendron family. 
Um, if you can mimic what it likes, it's completely happy. The biggest problem I see is our heavier clay soils where it really isn't as happy, almost like Lakothaway would be. It really needs right. that good drainage with a little bit, you know, sharper soil in it than, than what a lot of, a lot of properties can, um, can provide for. What about Cirilla racemiflora, or which is the tie tie? I have a Cirilla that is about 10 foot tall by 15 foot wide. Um, I grow it from seed every year. The pollinators, the native bees, the native wasp, I mean, there is nothing better than that plant. And that one will take the wet soils, the heavier clay, and will thrive like nobody's business. Sadly, I could probably count the number of places that grow it on two fingers. So it's not widely available to the trade. So that's that's another one that's on my list to try to get some of these vendors that were happy enough to try the the Elysium, uh, the anise tree. And I think if we could get Cirilla out there, people would find out it is a fantastic performer. And for us, not being evergreen like it is down south, have you seen the fall color on that? Oh, right. yes. I, I can get you some there. seed if you want. <laughs> I've got, yeah, I've got oodles of seed as well. Uh, so... <laughs> Totally, totally hip on that plant. It is a fantastic plant. Is that yep. Cirilla with a C? Yes, Cirilla racemosa, or Tai Tai, or TT, depending on. You'll also name. see it racemiflora too. Um, racemiflora. Okay. Yeah, they they kind of changed the names again. So. Okay. Well, these They're, these nomenclatures keep us on our toes. Every time I know time. that's that's something that you like. You know, people do that. People don't believe that people do that uh, for entire lifetimes and are constantly trying to keep a databases up to date. And, and that's, that's something that is a real specialty area. Absolutely. Um, so. I just want to say I'm completely humbled. Uh, I think the last six plants that you guys have mentioned, I have not heard of them. So. <laughs> well, well, you know, yesterday when we had this symposium, uh, somebody asked me about Euonymus atropropureus, which yeah, is yeah, Eastern Wahoo, which I was like so excited because I did articles on all these things that are obscure. And that one, there's another one that's really beautiful. It's not an evergreen, but it has a beautiful fall color, fall fruit, interesting flowers in the spring. They're small, but you know, that's a great plant for wetland area or yep. any place where you might want to have a, a focal point. And let's not forget Croton albumens. Oh, that's another good one. I love that one, which is the, which is the Alabama Croton. Alabama Croton, yep. Yeah, and Alabama Croton. All color on that right now is kicking in. It is terracotta orange to the T, just an amazing plant, you know, with those silver backs in the, in this, you know, in season and everything else. Uh, that's another one we promote. That is definitely a plant that I know I, the first time I saw it, I think it was at Mount Cuba many, many that's years it. ago, down along the drive on Mount yep. Cuba, at Mount Cuba. And then I saw it at um, Scott Arboretum. And of course, I've seen it in the southern states, but not up here. And I was really impressed with that plant. Really, really a beautiful plant. I, um, I think if we, if we want to just, if I can diverge a little bit here. So. Yeah, sure. One of the coolest plants that I have um, in our kind of display garden at the uh, at the office at Sam Brown's is a plant called Euscaphus japonica, the Korean sweetheart tree. So right now it's doing like what Heptacodium is. You're you're starting to see the calyx open and reveal that black droop inside there, and everybody thinks that it's it's its flower that it's coming into flower right now. So it's 
it's and it's sitting right next to an Osmanthus heterophilus goshiki, which is in full bloom. So the scent kind of lures you in, and then they look up and they see the Euscaphus, and it's just like, wow, here's a double bang of like two really cool plants that you never, re- never really get to see. Well, the Osmanthus, I think, is way underused. Uh, and again, uh, most of them are non-native, but they are certainly well-behaved. Um, and the one you mentioned, Osmanthus heterophilus goshiki, is a, a superb one with its variegation. Um, and uh, Osma- Osmanthus heterophilus golf tide, which uh, is in full bloom at Longwood right now by the restaurant, and the fragrance is just amazing. But it holds its really beautiful green all year long, uh, all year long. It just looks fabulous. That's another genus that we sell oodles of because to date they're showing superior diseases or deer resistance and, um, you know, holding up to, you know, even some of the bad winters and uh, very utilitarian, especially now that we're seeing some of these newer cultivars come out um, like Hariyama, which would be a compact form of Sasaba and Kayorahime, which is a fantastic foundation plant that'll probably only get like three to four by three to four. Wow. So it's, it's amazing that we're finally seeing some, because Goshiki really should not be a foundation plant, even though you see it when there are oodles at times. I mean, it get to be a big plant, as as does Golf Tide. But finally, we're seeing some selections being made that, you know, if you, if you do your homework and um, you can find the right plants, there's some really tough, really good, great plants that are out there. I think that you've made some really good um, recommendations here. Uh, I think that's, I think, I love the osmanthus, especially because of the fall bloom and uh, their fragrance. And having smaller ones will just make the garden explode in this, at this time of the year. Absolutely. I'm starting to have a sense of what future landscapes might look like in the Delaware Valley, because, you know, at my end as an arborist, I'm kind of at the back end of plants that uh, you're trying to keep looking healthy and vibrant and Right now, you know, there's a handful of them that they're only going to stay green and pest free if we uh, do a handful of treatments throughout the the growing season. And so often, you know, like with uh, azalea, rhododendron, hemlock, that's the only way we can keep them viable. Hal, have you seen the new hybrid uh, suga that they're touting? I think it's a cross between canadensis and caroliniana, if I'm not mistaken. Caroliniana or sinensis? I thought it was sinensis. Maybe it's sinensis, yeah. You might be right, Eva. No, that sounds good also, Andy. I don't think the habit is going to be the same Mm-mm, as our native, not. But, um, but if we can find something that's resistant to the adelgid and still maybe give some deer resistance, it would be uh, it would be great to have another evergreen, you know, large evergreen in our arsenal that we can recommend. Absolutely. And the small needle too. I think that's, yes. that's important because it, it gives a finer texture rather than that real bold, big kind of texture that you get with the large leaf, uh, um, broadleaf evergreens. We are the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, but that doesn't mean we can't talk about shrubs because they are also important. Absolutely. And, and they go with trees because trees don't like to stand by themselves. <laughs> they just don't. They like to have company around them. <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine a garden without trees and shrubs mixed in there. Yep. So um, shifting, shifting the topic a little bit, Hal and I uh, like to uh, ask our listeners, and I'll let Hal ask it, um, 
our perennial question that we ask all of our guests. How? Well, I guess that is, I mean, uh, this is going to be a hard one for Andy is, uh, you know, we like to just say uh, you've been in this as a career and lifelong commitment and passion. Do you have a favorite tree? <laughs> I, I suppose it depends on the day of the week. Um, but if, if to, to honestly answer that question, it would be two different genuses. It would be pretty much anything Hamamaldesi. So um, Parodias, Psychoparodia, um, obviously Witch Hazel's Father Gilla, um, and the list goes on and on. I'm even growing Rodelia, which probably shouldn't be hard to hear. And then uh, Stuardia. Um, so I really, you know, you can't narrow me down to one because I just don't think that's in my brain that I could pick just one. Um, but my goodness, you look at those two genuses and you could really have some fun picking all kinds of cool stuff. You've, you've answered, you've answered the question pretty much like all the other people. Yeah. <laughs> you can't pick a favorite child. You can't no. pick a favorite child. So pick a favorite child, can't pick a favorite food, can't pick a favorite beer, a favorite wine. Come right. on. And, and then you make it plants. Oh goodness. That's way too hard. No, it is. It's very hard. So with Stuardia, that's a, that's a great answer. Uh, and it, it does continue to perform consistently. I'm always finding myself answering the question, you know, people say, what can I replace uh, my declining uh, dogwood or redbud with? You know, they're both a struggling species, although dogwood continues to um, surprise me with its tenaciousness. But does Stuardia kind of line up with dogwood as kind of like an edge planting and uh, something that can handle... You know, if you, if you really want tough in the Stuardia family, you would go with Stuardia ristrata. You know, you're not going to have the showy bark, but boy, is it tough. It's one of the first Stuardias to bloom. The flowers are slightly smaller than what you see on Pseudocamellia, but it is a workhorse and, you know, is more drought tolerant than what you'll see on Pseudocamellia. So, yeah, bar none, it's, it's a fantastic plant. That's great. I like uh, tough and just kind of lunch bucket type trees. I'm a yep. uh, Australia and Carpinus guy that kind of fill, fills that bill as well. Can't go wrong with that. And I'm loving the fact that we're seeing so many actual selections of our native Carpinus now for either form or for consistent red fall color. You know, just things that you may or may not get with a seedling grown. Right. And also, you know, Australia is Australia. You see a big Australia in the woods and that sinewy bark and everything else. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a stunning plant. And more selections need to be made of some of these. Yeah, I, we hiked uh, in the Endless Mountains uh, three weeks ago uh, for a couple days. And uh, I had a nice daily regular exposure to Australia. And also, unless someone can tell me otherwise, I think I was seeing um, Cornus um, uh, Pagoda Dogwood. Alternifolia. And yeah, I did look it up. I didn't realize that I would find it up that way, but uh, doing quite well. Probably happier up there. That's another one I think that suffers a little bit from our humidity and heat. Would probably be happier with uh, a higher elevation and slightly cooler summer temperatures. Well, the, the pagoda dogwood is just a fabulous one, I think. And uh, But it, it does do okay here if you have it on the edge of a wood where it's getting a cool uh, or downdraft Yep. In a, in a little ravine or something like that where the cool temperatures hang out. 
another another invasive Asian but cool native would be Styrax americanus. Again, you don't see it very often, but the viability of the seed on that versus any of the other Styrax is like, I don't know, maybe it's 10%. It might be less. But, um, you know, a plant that we probably couldn't grow 20 years ago, all of a sudden it's completely at home growing here. What about Styrax obesia? Um, I like obesia a lot as well. And um, is, that a, is that a cool plant for here? Oh, absolutely. I mean, for the leaf size, the floral display, you know, having it in a chain that hangs down versus just a little cluster. Um, and that butter yellow fall color is just, it's a fantastic plant. We, that, that's another that we grow and, and sell a fair amount of. The problem, the biggest problem there is uh, we have found that the lanternfly love Styrax. Yes. Uh, like yeah, we've heard bark. that. And um, sadly, most of what I have in production right now, the bark is just covered in sooty mold from all the exudation from the, uh, from the um, lanternfly. Do you feel like you had any fatalities from the... Uh, no, no, it's yeah. definitely weakened a little bit. Um, yeah. You know, when, when the foliage is getting covered by the sooty mold, you know, photosynthesis is getting knocked down. Yep. No, no real fatalities, but definitely weakened. So now I'm just hoping that we don't have boar or ambrosia beetle issues since the plants are weakened. Before we let you go, Andy, and we always push the limit, when you go into town um, and you see the street tree uh, populations and so much of the plant a trillion trees discussion is about, you know, greening old row house neighborhoods. Is there a couple trees you can suggest that you think, oh man, I wish they were planting thus and so in these uh, three by four pits so that we can kind of advocate uh, on their behalf to expand the palette of urban tree planting? So can I toot my own horn? Yes, you can. Okay. Okay. All, right. all about. <laughs> So a couple a couple of years ago, um, you you both know of Princeton Nurseries. When they were going out of business, um, my my former boss and I were invited to their research and development block, and we were allowed to pretty much take anything that we wanted out of there. So we we selected two metasequoias and one Coosa dogwood that seemed to have some real interesting shape to them. So long story short. One of the metasequoias ended up being this very, very narrow, upright, very short, internoted plant. And um, working with Angie Treadwell and Linda Guy of Plants Nouveau, we are now um, working on a patent for a metasequoia called Urban Spire. So it's being touted Whoa. as a fantastic street tree because, as we both know, urbans, uh, I mean, metasequoia will take urban conditions no problem at all. Yeah. Uh, if this was limbed up to six or seven foot, you're going to have, you know, minimal leaf waste in the uh, or leaf litter in the fall and would definitely add diversity to the urban landscape that you don't see. So I, I just think that's a fantastic plant. Again, I'm a little biased on it, but I've grown the plant, I've seen it, and it's a pretty amazing plant. Fantastic. That is such exciting news because uh, I, I somewhere along the line, maybe because it's always a giveaway plant at the Morris Arboretum, I re recall that it also uh, transplants very well and has uh, yes, yes, a big grass very Oh, that's good to know because I just transplanted the one that had grown in itself out of its pot in front of my house. I couldn't get in the front door. <laughs> Two others that I would think. So, uh, um, oh my goodness, um, the Is Latin. Is dogwood? You were saying something about Cusa dogwood. Oh, the Cusa dogwood that didn't that didn't pan out. That, that didn't one pan and, out. and the other the other metasequoia would be a fantastic collector's piece, but has no no real value. 
But um, you look at liquid ambar, uh, styrocephala, uh, slender silhouette, another great urban tree, um, if you can put up with the fact that it's still going to produce fruit. Um, a very narrow, upright sweet gum, amazing fall color, very tolerant of urban conditions, but it is it does produce fruit. But the nice thing is all the fruit's going to drop within probably four to five foot of the base. So it's it's not going to be as much of a weed or a nuisance as a straight species would be. And then a plant that I learned when I was at school down at the University of Delaware, it was a source of latex supposedly during World War II, which is your hardy rubber tree, which is Eucomia almoides. Uh, there is a new selection called, it might be Emerald Point or something like that. But you talk about a plant that has this lustrous dark green leaf with an amazing fastidious upright form, no disease or insect problems to think of. You talk about an underutilized, you know, great urban tree. I think that would be it. I remember uh, Princeton used to have that listed in their catalog back in the day. Yes, one of the few nurseries that you could actually find that plant. <laughs> and and we are going to have Nancy Buley from um, Franklin J. Frank Schmidt. J. Frank Schmidt on. We're going to be talking about all of their new introductions. So I'm really glad that you brought up the plant that you are nursing into the trade because not everyone knows that when you find a good tree that people can actually benefit by putting it into the trade so that other people can utilize it for planting and and create a different type of environment by having a different look for a plant as you you were talking about that's actually my second patent uh, or my um that be my first plant patent. My second one is a seedling that I found here in my garden, which again is Metasequoia, but it was a, uh, a seedling off of Ogon. And this one is called Soulfire. It is again, a, a short inner node. When the leaf comes out in the spring, it has a beautiful bronze overlay that runs down the midrib into the leaflets. It holds its yellow color in the hottest, nastiest part of the summer, just like it would when it leaves out in spring. Um, the, wow. the, guys that are, the guys that are growing it on the West Coast, they say it's the only yellow metasequoia that they will grow because it does not burn out there. So Soulfire is the one I'm expecting really big things out of. And so when do you think these some of these uh, metasequoias might be available? I know exactly where you can get both, Hal. <laughs> and your location? Yes, I have, I have both on the shelf right now and, and we have them in field production as well. Terrific. That's fabulous. Well, we are really thrilled that you could be on our show. Just before we close for the, for the day, um, I wanted to find out, and I know you're a real proponent of supporting local botanic gardens, and I think you really need to be commended for that. I know you every year you always uh, support the Woody Plant Conference, et cetera, and uh, we're wondering how that bolsters your business. You know, that's a great question, Eva, and I don't know if it bolsters my business per se. I mean, we do a fantastic business with most of the local arboretum and gardens, and I think that's because people have known to trust us or to trust me that, you know, our quality is there and that we can find things that are hard to find. But, you know, for me, it's it's about inspiring people and, you know, if if I have other customers in the yard and they see, you know, a Longwood truck pull in or they see the Mount Cuba truck pull in or they see, you know, Scott Arboretum 
uh, truck pull in. They're like, wow, you're selling plants to these guys. And I'm like, yeah, these are some of my, and some of my best friends are, you know, working at these places. So it's, uh, it's been really kind of strange how this relationship has developed, but you know, we do try to support via donations where we can for the places that have lesser endowments. Um, it's, it's just, for me, it's all about the plants. It's just a lot of fun. And it's just, uh, when I visit these places, it's nice to see my babies, you know, in the landscape and growing and everything else. So it's, I think it's rewarding on both ends of the fence. Well, I, I think that that's very commendable and it, it shows, uh, that you have a passion for what you do. And, uh, I do know that no matter where I go, everyone knows your name. So that's, that's a really wonderful thing. Uh, so we really do appreciate you taking the time today to be on our show. Uh, Hal and I are always geeking out on plants. <laughs> We're always <laughs> talking about them. It's nice to have another plant geek on the show. <laughs> Absolutely. You guys are the best. And I can't thank you enough for having me. It was, you know, I could probably go on for three, four more hours, but uh, I get it. So thank you. We're going to let you do that, but we're going to have you back soon, Andy. Yes, we'll have right. to have you back. <laughs> Thanks right. again, Andy. You guys are the best. Have a great weekend, okay? Thank you, you, you too. too. Thank you. Right. Bye. Bye-bye.